So I'm curious, how do you, because you're also a teacher, mm -hmm. how do you balance your music life with your uh, profession, like professor life? Well, as, as you can see, you know, we're not on Spotify because I've got a professor life. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it, I, I'm, you know, I've got three kids. Um, you know, one is still a senior in high school. The others are off in college. Uh, so it's, you know, that's, that's been my priority for a good long time. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, we just fit it in where we can. My, my wife is great. She understands that, that this is part of what I do. And, you know, it's, I've been a musician for as long as she's known me. Um, so she's very supportive of that. Uh, and, um, and, uh, so I, I just fit it in when I can. Um, and I, um, my bandmates do the same. We you have to do a lot of, you have to do a lot of re rehearsal prep on your own, mm. and that's that helps because you have to make every minute of rehearsal count, and uh, we're pretty good at that. Uh, when it comes to Salt Hill, um, I, I said this in a previous podcast. I give so much credit to Carl Greathouse, who knows he knows how to run a disciplined rehearsal. I mean, for any musicians out there, um, socializing is great. Chatting with your bandmates is great. But pay attention to your rehearsal time. You book three hours of rehearsal time, and if the first 20 minutes is catching up, if that's essential to what you're doing as a band, that's great. Um, but, uh, but you'll get a lot more done if you, if you just... Running rehearsal, it's, it's funny, Carl's, Carl's not a, a professor, but, but he runs rehearsal the way I would run a class. You have to come, and I'm speaking to the educators out mm -hmm. there, you have to come with a lesson plan. This is what we're going to do today. This is what we're going to accomplish. And, um, and Salt Hill, with the benefit of Carl running practices that way, um, uh, has we get a lot done in the, in the few times that we do rehearse. We rehearse at least once a month, um, uh, whether we need it or not. Um, and, that's uh, important, too. And that's important. Um, and uh, so the progress is slow. The originals come out slowly. But when they do, and also I think uh, when it comes to writing original songs, um, I, I think it's, it's important to vet the songs before an audience. Because once oh, you've yeah. written a song, once you've written a song, just because you have a structure, just because you have lyrics, doesn't mean it's done. And, uh, you know, the song for the first, you know, a song should be a living thing for as yeah. long as it can. And you record it when you think you've gotten it to a mature point. And after you, after you record it, it can still emerge farther. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's kind of, uh, if you're not, if you're not, if you're like me and you're kind of like studio phobic or you're just a procrastinator, there's, there's deep regret when you put a song down and then you come up with something playing it live and go, oh, we got we should have recorded that version of it. Um, so I don't mind, I don't mind having the, originals still living in the live only land mm -hmm. for a while because uh, I, I know there are a lot of if, if I were a young musician if I were trying to you know break into the Brooklyn scene or something like that I would feel pressured to have kind of the, this package of original material that I could use to sell to uh, establishments um, I, I feel like I, I have enough of a reputation locally where I can call people up and get gigs as I as I want them I, I don't book a lot uh, for Salt Hill, um, and the guys seem fine with that. Um, you know, we're very selective in where we play. Um, 
but uh, but the the original songs I think still have to live on their own in the live world for a while before they get recorded. I don't know. Again, did I lose track of your original no, question? No, uh, I mean, well, see, most of these questions evolve into different answers anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, but uh, that makes a lot of sense because first off, the the song you play is never going to be played the same right. anywhere. Right. And you're always, and here's here's what I've learned. Uh, people, you know, re- remastered versions are released all the time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, and and, that, and that's a, a song should be living. You're right, mm-hmm. all the time, and because and it's de facto living because it's going to be played uh, differently at a restaurant versus a live event right. where you're right. where you're going to go into solos and and the jams mm-hmm. and all the vamps and all that right. jazz uh, versus a restaurant where it might or it, or at a concert per se, it might, well, depending on you know whoever's watching, mm-hmm. it's just going to be straight through, right, right, once and done. But other places, it's going to be uh, depending on the feel. If it's at Roots and Blues, it's probably going to go on for a mm-hmm. jam for right. a long time, and people are just going to be up there dancing and partying. Uh, so, in you know, loudness. How loud is it going to be? Right, uh, right. Are you guys the main focus, like at a concert, or are you guys uh, the 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 back stuff mm-hmm. at, at a restaurant where people are eating and you know living right. their lives. Um, so you're right. So I'm curious. What what did your uh, kids uh, think whenever they learned that you were uh, like a local band guy? Or did they did they? I'm sure that they they knew of it. But what were their opinions? Did they, uh, did they yeah, like their well, music or? early on, I don't think it was any more interesting than my being bald. Uh, you know, it's just like oh, it's just what dad. It's just what dad is. It's just what dad does. Um, but uh, as as my as my kids have grown up and they've kind of developed musical tastes of their own, I think they have a little bit more of an appreciation of it. And um, and my my oldest son, who is uh, who is a great guitarist, again a better um, you know he's he's like a, a, a student of Hendrix and is really mm. into that kind of uh, kind of that stripped down technical. I'm I'm just gonna have you know I'm gonna focus on technique and I'm just gonna have a fuzz pedal. And and uh, and a vibe pedal, um, but he's also he's also kind of found his way to American roots through through the Grateful Dead. We just uh, uh, we just saw Dead and Company um, with John Mayer at um, I, I almost said the Vet, the Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia um, a couple weeks ago, and um, back in the early two thousands, you know, he was three, four, and five years old when I was playing with Angelo. And Angelo and I did a lot of, uh, we didn't do a lot of dead songs, but Angelo really nailed songs like, um, like uh, Me and My Uncle, and uh, he really had nice original versions of it. So, so now that my son's older, it's very satisfying to take him back to recordings mm. of me working with Angelo and him going, that's great, that's, you know, that guy can play. Right. Not, not me, Angelo. Um, so, uh, and this was a guy who was like walking into our house. We were rehearsing in my basement while he was up there as a three and four year old. So, so as, as he's getting older and doing that, uh, that's very satisfying. Um, my, uh, my other son is, um, is a fantastic drummer and he is, he has been a substitute drummer for Salt Hill. You know, he played his first bar gig at 16 years old behind Salt Hill and, um, and and did a fabulous job, so that that was kind of a, a an ultimate parent moment mm. when um, when your own kid is 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 
the drummer behind you at 16 years old. Uh, and, um, and, and my bandmates were just, you know, they, they just loved it because I know the first time I said, hey, let's, um, I think, uh, you know, this drummer's sick or can't make the gig. I said, I think Adam can cover the gig. And they were like, right. I said, give him two rehearsals. Right. And we rehearsed two. You know, I, I gave him a set list. He was familiar with the songs we were playing. And he, he did fabulous. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So uh, what about your students at Millersville? Did they, did they ever realize, oh, you're... I don't, I don't promote it. I don't. Of course, uh, of it's, and, and a lot of my, a lot of my colleagues are kind of, uh, they're kind of, um, they, they, they like dropping the bomb on the students and be like, Hey, Gallagher's band's playing Friday night. And they're like, Gallagher has a band. <laughs> um, so, so I've been outed by my, by my colleagues a number of times. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, whether it's whether it's teaching or performing live music, it's performance and right. and holding attention yes. and reading the audience. What do I have to do now? Am I am I losing the crowd? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, every 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 teacher, professor, instructor can tell you about that feeling about being you know halfway through a class and you just feel the attention is spinning out of control that that you're 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 losing them. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of parallels between that experience. Uh, the, 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 the knot in your stomach that you get when you feel you're losing a class is the same knot in the stomach that you get when you feel like, oh, geez, we have to turn this set list around. What are mm -hmm. we doing here? We have to redirect. Kind of like, you know, that classic scene in the Blues Brothers where they show up, uh, show up at the country bar and they realize that they're not going to be able to get away with playing their own, their own music. You, you, have to, you have to think on your feet and, and hold their attention. And... Um, so yeah, so so uh, being a professor is is very performative. I don't like online education. Um, oh, me uh, neither. I you know COVID was um, uh, was a brutal time for my students. I you know I don't care what anybody says. It was um, it it was uh, it was a lost year and a half. Yeah. Um, and I, I understand the reasons for doing it, um, but I think we learned a hard lesson about online ed uh, through COVID, and that the um, the the peer pressure that students feel when they're in a classroom of other students who are paying attention and engaged um, is an essential part of education that that we that we forget about when we when we when we uh, when we believe that we can when we can reach students individually um, and when we turn education into watching TV uh, I have no patience for the argument that that this is the future. Um, it is a it is it is a workable it is a workable method for the rare intrinsically motivated student who 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 probably could sit down with a textbook and learn the material on their own right. anyway. Yeah. That student's going to be fine in the online ed, ed department uh, or in the online ed um, format. Uh, but human nature being what it is. Learning, learning is a communal experience. Learning is an experience that, that is shared just like performing music. You feel it happening. Oh, Lord, I did. I mean, I'm happy to be able to do it, but I did a number of, of those Zoom benefit concerts where we were all kind of like set off in our own room and we strummed our guitar to our computer screens. It was better than nothing. Right. It was, it was better than nothing. But it, there was just there was just it was a painful, deep right? sadness yeah. to it. There's <laughs> a deep sadness to performing like that. So the experience I had in doing Zoom concerts is is exactly the same experience I had 
in teaching online, that the audience needs to be together, there. learning together, experiencing things together, sharing the experience together. Yeah, I didn't even think about it. You, you brought up um, the peer pressure aspect of learning. Mm -hmm. And I never thought about that before, but you're right. I didn't learn. Well, granted, I have ADHD, so it was, online education was awful yeah, for me awful. regardless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but because I wasn't surrounded in a room with like-minded people, unless it was like music, something I actually cared about, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and not to say that we, here you have to take, I took music composition and by default Bible degree. Mm -hmm. uh, not to say I don't care about the Bible as a Christian, but there were some topics that right. I just, right. you know, you just don't care mm -hmm. care for. Right. Uh, and oftentimes I'll out myself that uh, the morning class is with a particular professor who has a very monotonic voice. Yeah, yeah. I would, right. I would just lay in bed while, mm -hmm. while he spoke. Yep. And um, granted, there are, uh, I'm curious, have you ever delved into the studies of having something on while you're sleeping? And if that helps learn or... I, I don't know. I don't think it no. does. I think if anything, I discovered that. I think if anything, um, uh, it, it, I, I, I fall asleep faster. <laughs> like, like it just, uh, there's something about, there's something about putting, and I did do this a, a number of times, you know, figured, okay, well, you know, I, I don't do as much reading as I'd like to while I'm awake. So I'm going to start doing um, audio books mm. and maybe I'll get a chapter of an audio book in while I fall asleep. And there was just something about having somebody speak to me while I was listening to one of the book. It, it, it actually accelerated my, my sleep. Like I was falling asleep faster. And, uh, and so, no, I think, I think, I think there's something about um, putting headphones on when my head hit a pillow that shut my attention off even faster. It was a great thing for oh, my sleep course, health. Yes. But I don't think it, it took me, it took me a long time to get through that book. I have noticed that that whenever I'm like listening to something, I'll listen to someone playing like a, a relaxed video game or whatever, who just has a nice voice, and I'll gone yeah, immediately. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so, interesting, but uh, in regards to online learning, it was especially learning music. Ooh, you yeah. right? Oh, you can't. Yeah. That's that's not possible. Yeah. I I I'm so happy that. Uh, LBC went went back to in person mm -hmm. um, after what the one semester that everyone was off right right mm -hmm. and uh, because mu learning music having to do like forum uh, a, f a forum here is like where everyone's together and at, they perform mm -hmm. in front of each yeah. other yeah uh, doing that online right and the, and, and the pressure was off I bet the anxiety oh, yes. wasn't what it was yeah because and, and that's such an important part of performance is, right is those nerves because you have to take control of those nerves mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's that's the art of music theater mm -hmm. and uh, performance is that you you have to look at everybody in the audience and then put out all you have right to them and that is god awful experience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for those who aren't trained in it right and um, I can't I did a vocal forum because I wanted to learn more about the voice and all that jazz as a composer. Mm -hmm. And I could sing perfectly fine in the studio, whatever, by myself. But of course you can. Right. Everyone sings great in the shower. Mm -hmm. But when you're put in, in front of an audience, yeah. it, it starts yeah. shaking. And, uh -huh. it, and it's, it, it's, it's immediate. The, and you, learn, you lose all of that on, on, uh, edge, on the uh, virtual learning. It's great for one on one, a one on one, uh, like independent study, like yeah, like sure. you said. Mm -hmm. But for a classroom, yeah, 
if this had happened when when I was uh it, when I was like in my uh middle school or first grade years, and there there have been a few studies on this that they've lost a a a, a portion of growth, because, mm-hmm. like the social aspect or or whatnot. Oh yeah. I I right. want I wonder how and we kind of talked about this pre show. I in middle school I decided I wasn't going to speak. Awful decision for my mm-hmm. for my voice right. and speech. I can't imagine what 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 it was what it, it would be what the effects will be or what we'll find out mm-hmm. uh, in the future because students lost one and a half to yeah. two years yeah. of social communal learning, yep. um, and just the social cues because in person and this is why I kind of push for in person interviews as well because it's com- it's a completely forget the technical issues that can happen right. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the seeing the actual eyes of right, somebody, right. having that uh, reading high, the crowd, reading the crowd mm-hmm. uh, in person, body language at, at a at a virtual in virtual learning, all you see is the top half. You don't, you right. can't, and right. so much of our legs and our uh, just other body, other other positions speak right. so much to how right. we're feeling, and I can't imagine uh, having to. Do that forever. That's not the right. way of the future. Right. It's uh, it's <laughs> students. Students projected an indifference online that they never would have face to face. right. Because of course, you know, when I was doing Zoom, I think you know my my computer could only handle like a maximum of 12, 12 faces at a time. At a time, right. So so if I, I think the students very quickly realized that if they were the ones who had their screens off. They would be on the subsequent page, and I wouldn't see them. I wouldn't know they that could they do weren't whatever they there, want. and they could do whatever they want. And even the ones that were did have their their screens on. You'd see them in bed, you know, with their right, pillows, exactly. yeah. That's, up that's what I would do. It's like, yeah. on, what you? I, <laughs> I had to take a summer class, uh, online a summer online class because this wasn't because of COVID, it's because I had to. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I worked at a factory, at, uh, and I was <laughs> moving boxes around. Uh, we made. Military clothes for the army. Mm-hmm. Military clothes, for, of course, that's what. Right. <laughs> we made clothes for the military. Right. And uh, so we had to move packaging around, and uh, I would have my earphones in, driving a forklift around, whatever. And uh, they would, he would ask me a question, I'm like, "Oh crap, can I pull out my phone?" Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, respond to it. I was like, uh, "So I just, I was like, listen, just to let you know, I'm working." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know. At that point, it was more like a podcast than anything, mm-hmm. right, uh, right. Th- than actual learning. Right, and I can't imagine what it, w- how the future would work, or what consequences that would have if we chose to do that forever, yeah. because it's never been done before. Yeah. yeah, and like if you're in Antarctica or something like that, and there's no choice, there, there's sense. a place there's for a it. Place for it. Uh, and and uh, you know, speaking of the military, I had students who were. Um, who who were stationed in remote places, and uh, the 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 online uh, teaching that was happening during COVID allowed them to pick up a class or two that would otherwise have not been available Possible, to them. Yeah, so so I I cons. feel for those students. Yeah, I, I get yeah. that, and I'm glad that opportunity was there for them. Um, but it's it's a it's um it it it's, it's it comes with compromise. So, so what are um, as a teacher, what what is your philosophy in regards to teaching your students, or as, as teaching in general? Do you have one or? Oh, a philosophy. Um, I'm lucky to be at Millersville. I'm lucky to be teaching at an institution where I face no more than 
you know, maybe 40 students in a classroom, in a big class. It's always less than that. It's usually less than that. So by the end of the first month of, of classes, I, I pretty much know everybody's name, uh, which allows me, again, that, that social pressure, it allows me to give them that look if they've missed class for a day. <laughs> Where do you look um, at the screens? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have that with the screens. Um, so, um, you know, my philosophy is, is, uh, is to kind of, you know, keep them on task, to recognize where they are, to remember who I was when I was mm. 18, 19, 20 years old, and, um, and to, to, you know, to, to encourage them to, and, and you don't need to, you don't need to encourage them from the ground up. Sometimes you just need to just give them that little nudge that, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that student who's sitting in the fourth row in the back corner of the room who thinks that you don't miss them when they skip class, you give them little, you know, the little smart alecky, hey, nice to see you when they right, come in the next course. day. And, and there are some people who would go, oh, that's horrible. You're, you're, you're demeaning the student. You're making them feel small. Um, and maybe for a second you are. Yeah. But... They they appreciate that, and then they'll they'll come back the next day and and uh, and realize that they were seen. And, yeah, and realize that they were seen, and well, and that they will be missed if yeah, they exactly. if they skip class. Um, so um, I I I'm fortunate in that I feel like what I teach is is often easily relatable to to their lives. So mm. um, it's not difficult for me to um, to to demonstrate. "Quote unquote real world examples that tie in what I'm teaching about to uh, what matters to them. I teach uh, research design and experimental methods, and uh, so I, I have a lot of in class demonstrations. You teach people about um, teach people about what makes science work, why science should work when it doesn't, um, and why it doesn't, no and and the kind of like the guardrails that are supposed to be in place to to uh, to keep science on track." Uh, when I teach sensation and perception, I'm teaching them about how vision and hearing work. And I encounter a lot of students like you who had, um, you know, they were patched as kids and they are learning a little bit more about um, about what that means for the way they see the world. Um, and why uh, it happened. <laughs> and why it happened. Uh, you know, sometimes you don't know why it happened, but, um, but uh, demonstrating to them that... Uh, demonstrating to them, you know, the, the differences between them and somebody who has good stereopsis and what they can do to, to compensate or close that gap. I teach a lot about hearing and hearing loss, which is something that is becoming more and more concerning to me yeah. as, I, as I am like 54 years old listening to loud guitars and drums for a long part of, for a big part of my life. Um, and um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very satisfying. I, th I think the students I work with for the most part are there because they want to be there, um, and um, you know, it's I, I think I have a, I think I have a great job. I like what I do. I have great colleagues, great friends among my colleagues. Uh, it's it's a very satisfying environment to be in between what I get what I get from the students and my and my colleagues and what I feel I can deliver to the students. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So, um, regarding educators. What are some maybe mistakes that you think some educators or maybe maybe you have perhaps made, uh, and how can you speak to that and uh, advise against or or for alternatives? Ooh, um, boy, there's a loaded question. Uh, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna just run out there onto the thin ice. Um, uh, 
the um, the learning styles philosophies, I think, have done more damage than good. Explain the learning styles philosophies. Uh, a, a well-meaning supportive instructor uh, uh, tells a fourth grade student that they are a blank kind of learner and these people a visual are a learner blank kind of learners. And audio, I didn't want to uh, say it, gotcha. but yeah. Um, as, as soon as you start doing that, you start... Um, you 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 basically you basically create a platform of confirmation bias that that student is going to stand on for the rest of their lives. Mm. Um, there's there's very little evidence. I mean, of course, if if somebody is completely blind, um, you're you're not you know your visual learning style is not going to be your visual learning is not going to be what it is for somebody who right. is sighted. Um, but uh, but these but these labels are 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 dispensed with uh, with so much ease, um, and by the time the students get to me in college, uh, they they approach certain tasks with an "I can't" attitude. Oh, that's because. that's this. I can't because somebody has told me this. I can't because somebody has told me that. Um, uh, the science behind different learning styles is scant at best. And the people who are "quote unquote" doing these diagnoses um, uh, often don't have the background that they that they need to be delivering such diagnoses. Uh, additionally, they do not have a prescriptive plan for how to for how for if you know because in a perfect you know if if this were really a thing, you should be able to sort three groups of students. Let's let's say you have. You have visual learners and auditory learners. You should be able to separate students into the visual learner group and the auditory learner group, and then you should be able to give two different lessons to each group. Let's give the visual learners the auditory learning task or the auditory learning lesson and the visual learning lesson, and we'll give the auditory learners the auditory learning lesson and the visual learning lesson, and then you should be able to demonstrate that the auditory learners did better at the auditory lesson than the visual learners, and nobody has, nobody has, um, nobody has done research to that really? extent. Where where you can you can make a valid case that first of all the diagnostic categories are accurate and right. secondly that a um, that a teaching plan serves those groups independently uh, who who doesn't learn better when their learning is supplemented by pictures or stories um, and I would I would go back to that to that individual who um, is is completely blind. Um, their visual cortex uh, is still very active. I mean, it, it's it sounds kind of paradoxical to to some of us, it but, a light, but it? well, e- even even a person, um, you know, there are extreme cases, there are extreme horrible cases where where um, there's a there's an awful childhood cancer that's called retinoblastoma, oh. in which um, in which if it's not treated early, uh, this this is a very aggressive cancer that goes from the retina right to the brain. And uh, parents are faced with this impossible choice sometimes of, 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 of removing their children's eyes to save their lives. So here, here, are, here are people who are completely non-sighted. If you bring an individual like that into a room like this, they'll still have a sense for where the walls are. Yeah. They'll still, once, if you let them explore the room, they'll, they'll see where that, ta- they'll, 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 I use the word see, um, because the, the brain mechanisms are still in place. They'll know where that table is. So when they walk into an environment, their brain, the same brain that, that is fed by our eyes, mm-hmm. the part of their visual, their visual cortex, the part of their visual brain still gets filled up 
by the by the image of a room. Right. Even if they cannot see that room, and they are using that image, they will use their knowledge of that image to navigate their way through a room, and uh, and understand where they are. So so you could even argue that someone without eyes is still capable of visual learning. Um, so that again, I'm getting way out here that we could go for an, another hour explaining that. Um, but nobody. Or, or you and I could walk through this, you, know, you could walk through this building with your eyes closed, and as you're walking through the building with your eyes closed, you might bump into a wall or something here and there, but uh, you, you know. might well get out the door yeah. um, because you're, you're, you're monitoring where you are in space. You have, a, you have a memory map of this building, and you are using that to and get through that. you have the that. audio cues as well. Right. And so, I guess it's the same kind of concept of when, you know, when all the lights are off in your house, you still know your house. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, so uh, don't don't slam the. I, I just think you're slamming the door on um, on on a kid when you when you when you uh, you know it, we we talk about how labeling is bad in so many other respects, but uh, we have no qualms about saying, well, you are you you do this well or you do that well. I teach statistics, and I have had so many students come to me and say, I'm not a math person. They they regard they regard math as something that is um, that is abstract and apart from their everyday encounters and experiences. And when you can take math, when you can take numbers and anchor them to examples that they can uh, tangible examples, uh, you'll see that math is not an it's not abstract. It's something. It's it's a it's a tool for describing something that is very very concrete. Yeah, and, and math is you do math all the time whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's it's not. I don't like math. Mm-hmm. You can right. you can not like math, right? But to say you're not a math person, you know how to balance yourself mm-hmm. without having to think about it. Right. Math math is something you do in inherently mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. You <laughs> gas mileage, right? Right. Right. When, when am I gonna go, gonna go get gas? Mm-hmm. I, I can know that at the, at the gas this gas price it's gonna be X amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. If I wait a little bit, it might go up or down, and it'll be that much more. And you know, right. you, and tipping all the time. Do I have enough gas to get off the turnpike and exactly. not pay and not pay for it at the rest stop where I'm gonna pay six dollars a gallon? Right. Yeah. Am I gonna wait to the till I get to the turnpike, or mm-hmm. am I gonna wait until I get off the turnpike to fill up on gas? Right. Because you know, because of the different gas prices, and we do math. All the time, mm-hmm. without uh, re- even time. Yeah. You know, how much? Right. How much time right. am I gonna have? I'm gonna right. have thirty minutes. Right. Still math. You can feel those fractions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. That's that's such an interesting uh, perspective because I what so without that. So you you believe that it, it's or uh, you would say that it it would be a mis be misguided to tell somebody that oh I'm just you're just a that learner and and uh, ignore everything else. It might it, it it might be true that people do have these different kinds of learning styles. Um, the applicable science that would serve such a diagnosis Isn't is there. is not there. Okay. So what what is your uh, what uh, application of learning do you ascribe to? The application of learning I ascribe to is um, small class sizes where you can monitor an individual student and say. What are you having trouble with? What are you having trouble with? That that is much more effective than than saying, "Oh, you're a blank kind of learner, and you need to do this." Mm. Um, uh, and and again, I'm very fortunate to be teaching in an environment where um, the class sizes are still small enough where I can where I can keep tabs on those students. 
Um, and the obstacles, the obstacles are, are often not cognitive. They're often time management. They're <laughs> often study skills. They're often um, preparing for the class. Uh, there's no college students out there. There is no substitute for understanding what's going to be covered in class before you walk into the class. Because if you walk in there, if you walk in there with an anticipatory framework of what's coming in, and you can hang the new knowledge on an existing structure, uh, you're going to retain that knowledge much better than you will if you are just walking in uh, completely, uh, you know, just just completely unaware of what's on deck. Right. Um, so, uh, and you will save yourself hours of study time just by just by investing a little bit of prep, as we call it. You know, if you don't have time to read the chapter before the instructor covers it, skim the skim chapter it at least. At least, and and spark notes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's even if it's spark notes, don't use spark notes for the for studying for the exam. Right. But use it to to prepare for the class so you know what's happening. Ask questions if you're confused, if you're lost, if you don't know what's happening. Uh, sure, maybe an instructor will be a jerk and blow you off. That's their problem, not yours. Yeah, right. Keep asking, keep pursuing. Um, I, I have uh, many, many cold and lonely office hours in my life. You know, I'm supposed, uh, there, there, I, there hasn't been a week of my academic life where, where every one of my weekly office hours was occupied. So um, uh, students, especially if you're at a, a small college like this or at Millersville, your professors are accessible. Go bug them, and if and if and if they cop an attitude, tough. Bug them again. Well, it's, yeah, it's right. Their, it's their job. It's their job. It's their job. And you don't learn anything without asking questions. Yeah. And that, that's. Uh, I wonder if we uh, prepare our students to learn correctly. Do you? Yeah, that's another one. I don't know that anybody's really science that out, except for things like. Um, uh, prepare. Um, uh, uh, one of the buzzwords in education is scaffolding. Um, make sure you are supporting them. Um, it, just like um, just like having a good conversation. When you sit down with somebody and have a conversation, uh, if you're sitting down with a stranger, you have to assess who they are, where they are, what their knowledge set is, and then you build a conversation on what they know, what your shared interests are, and and what you're doing is 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 you're adding little pieces of new information on top of what they already know. Mm -hmm. But you first need to have an understanding of what they already know before you can put that new pla place in. Because like it's like it's like trying to put the the twentieth floor of a skyscraper in before you've built the fifth floor. Right. You have to know. You know if if you can imagine the. If you can imagine the knowledge set of each student being a skyscraper, you have to understand what floor they're up to. Because uh, if you have a number of students operating on the fifth floor and you're teaching at a 20, 20th floor level, uh, th that information is gonna, isn't going to stick. You have to teach them sixth floor stuff if they've got the fifth floor down. Uh, on the flip side of that, if they're up to the 20th floor and you're delivering them fifth floor stuff, they're going to be bored and you're going to lose them. And um, so you have, yeah. you have to know where the students are and um and uh professors who are teaching in large university settings um you know they they can't possibly they can't. do that for every student um so the student has to know where their knowledge set is too so uh if you're going to walk into a y large university setting 
um, it's, it's even more important to do your homework and understand what the teacher is going to be introducing and making sure that, you know, what, what they're, what they're teaching should be, should be just beyond your, uh, knowledge. just beyond your knowledge set. Yeah. It, um, for, so to explain that in kind of a, a simpler t- or more uh, tangible term, there's uh, different levels of music theory, right? Mm-hmm. But if you if you teach a kid uh, how to do scales, that's 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 the basic, or what notes are, mm-hmm. right? You can't you don't do that to. Uh, you have to realize that that kid, you know, that they're starting at level one. If you're talking to a college student, you could probably talk to them about diminished. And augmented mm-hmm. chords, mm-hmm. you can't explain that to a kid yet because they right. don't have the foundation. Of where are they going to put that? Mm-hmm. It's going to mean, oh, I know augmented and diminished chords are a thing. I don't know what that means. Right. Though. Yeah. Right. It all starts with the scales. Yeah. It all starts uh-huh. with the scales and, mm-hmm. and those relationships. So, so um, in regards to music, or what what is one thing that you know now that you wish you had known when you first started? Music. Music. Huh, um, or uh, teaching? You can't you can't create in a vacuum. Mm. Um, my dad's an artist, and he he always said that. Uh, um, and not not a musical artist. He's he's a potter and painter. And uh, when I started writing songs, I I really 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 tried to. I don't want to. I, I want this song to just you know it, like like it's going to. You know, people talk about those muses. It's it's going to come to me kind of like mystically from nowhere, and it's it's gonna it's gonna flow this way and that way. Um, I'm and I, I and I think Paul McCartney, uh, I think he gets credited for something to the effect of uh, "Good artists borrow, great artists steal." Yes. Uh, as a songwriter, um, as a songwriter, I still feel like I have a, have a long way to grow, um, but uh, I am I am unashamed. Of sitting down and saying, "I'm going to write a song that feels like this song. Mm-hmm. This this song all, is already there. This is what I feel, and I'm going to this this is going to be my foundational um, uh, approach. And by the time you're done with it, the song sounds nothing like the the song or the style that inspired you. But but it 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 helps a lot to have that foundation because." Because the, the the songs that I tried to write from a vacuum sound like, um, you know, I, you know, nothing, nothing against Philip Glass, but it's it's very it's very like, what the hell? What the hell is that? What is uh, what are you trying to uh, what are you trying to do here? Uh, yeah, that was an interesting chord change, but why? But why? Um, yeah, right. Yeah, and 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 theory, you know, music theory kind of gives you those guardrails, and um, and uh, you know, it works for a reason. And there is a, um, you know, I, I kind of I kind of think of it as 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 kind of a, uh, imagine imagine a, a bullseye. Imagine a bullseye with a single circle in the middle, and then two concentric rings around it. Okay, and and I'm trying to I'm trying to write songs that are in that middle ring that surrounds the bullseye, because in the bullseye, I- imagine the most cliche songs ever. Mm-hmm. being squarely in the bullseye, you know, heart and soul, happy birthday, the Wonder absolute, <laughs> the absolute, yeah, Wonderwall. <laughs> Funny thing, we, we, you know, I've covered Wonderwall and what I think is a pretty twisted and, and interesting way, but, um, but you have that, you have that absolute cliche in the middle and, uh, and out in the periphery, 
you have, um, you know, that you have uh, uh, David Byrne's uh, lowest selling album, whatever. Mm -hmm. So you have something that is way, way out there. You, you want to try to get out of the boundary, of the, you know, Cliché is there for a reason. It's, these, yeah. these are songs that fit. These are it songs that, that work. They match expectations. But you want to break expectations. You want to break expectations in a way a that still way. has an eye to, that still has an eye to, uh, you know, again, for lack of a better word, cliché. But you're throwing somebody something familiar and then you're, you're, putting, a, you're putting a spin on it. And, um, you know, sorry about the, all the baseball analogies here. But you're 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 it's 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 coming in the way you know it looks like a fastball and then at the last minute it breaks and from a from a pitcher's standpoint that's satisfying that's like yes that's exactly what I wanted to do because um because I'm following the typical path and I've given you something different and and sometimes that sometimes that stretching sometimes going outside of that of that bullseye of cliche uh, then becomes cliche. Yeah. You, what you've done is you've stretched the boundaries, and now that becomes acceptable. And then you have to push a little farther. Um, but it, it is it is um, amazing how after after centuries of making what what for lack of a better term we can call pop music, um, the the songs are the songs that you would listen to from four hundred years ago are still recognizable, and they're, they're still within the boundaries. We have not our brains don't want to break the boundary too far. Now, if you're going for something else, I mean, there are people who are seeking that, that, that discomforting, yeah. uh, that, that mind-breaking, and, and that can be very useful. Um, but but it's, it's my experience that, that that's not their go-to album of course. that they come back to every three years. I mean, I'm sure you have those albums. I have those albums where, where I, will just, I will just go on a month listening to, the, to this particular album uh, you know, it's like okay, time to go back to this one again and listen to it um, for a month, and um, and uh, there, there's a reason why we we keep getting drawn back to the center. And again, I think it, it goes back to the expectations and the foundational uh, patterns that we have in our brains about what what language and conversational tones should be. Um, really, hem music in, and uh, it's our job as songwriters to take to take the familiar. And then just push, just push on that wall and see how far, see where the wall is weak, find out where the wall is strong and push out of the squishy spots. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned that quote, uh, people don't realize, but there's, there are so many stuff that's been stolen from other artists. Uh, mm -hmm. John Williams took the famous Star Wars theme there, uh, for like 400, 500 years ago, somebody wrote that in a classical piece mm -hmm. and he just borrowed it, put yeah. it into Star Wars yep. uh, with minor changes. Ice Ice Baby and Under Pressure. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Quite literally, yeah. almost, uh -huh. in some, some yeah. spots, or, or stolen. Right. Um, and it's and there's both really good songs right. that yeah. people uh, jam to all the mm -hmm. time. It, and it's not to say that you're you're treading on someone else's work. It's just, it's moving it along. It's, it's progressing it. It's right. evolving it. It's adding your spice to it. And that's kind of what human history is, is mm -hmm. everybody right. adding their own spice onto stuff that's centuries and centuries right. old. Yep. It's, I'm curious, what are your thoughts, or if you have any, on music therapy? Um, again, does it work? Probably. Has it been scienced? 
um, you know, music therapy kind of falls under this umbrella of what do you find um, calming and satisfying? Mm. So w- would music therapy work to somebody like you and me for whom music is, is, is wonderful and central to our lives? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, but, but, but again, folks like you and me forget that there are a lot of people who don't give a hoot about music. And if you think that you're going to get through to this kid with music therapy and they are just not inclined to be a a musician, uh, you'll probably be disappointed and you might be investing a lot of money in a, in one therapy that is not beneficial at the cost of another one that is, Mm. um, uh, similarly, um, when, it, when it's music therapy, art therapy, whatever these therapies are, and again, not to disparage these therapies, but every one of these therapy approaches involves, um, uh, typically involves one-on-one attention from a right. caring adult. Yeah. So do, could I believe in Lego therapy? Could I believe in, you know, I'm, I'm an electrical geek. Could I believe in soldering therapy? I think soldering is therapeutic. Right. Um, uh, I, I just think that it's dangerous to assume that, um, that because it works show for me, show me how you diagnose a kid in right. need of music therapy and show me how that kid differs from the kid who has been diagnosed as needing art therapy. And then show me that the kid who you diagnosed as needing art therapy gets more progress with art therapy than they would with music therapy than they would with you know there's whatever else horse therapy whatever. Um, I don't think that uh, if you're talking about a kid who enjoys music, does music therapy work? Probably because one-on-one attention from a caring adult works. uh, again, I, I just don't think music therapy has been scienced out yet. It sounds good. It sounds um, fun. It sounds it sounds safe because you know here's something that a kid can do expressively. Um, but but uh, is music therapy better than poetry therapy? Is music therapy better than um, uh, you know, swim therapy? You name it. Mm-hmm. If, if music therapy is a thing, there should be an unequivocal way to demonstrate that you can diagnose somebody in need of music therapy and then demonstrate that the kids that you diagnose in need of music therapy do better with music therapy then, than they would with art therapy. Gotcha. And I just don't think that has been done. It, it, I know I'm making it, a lot of people no, cringe out there. No, I mean, because you make a good point because there are so many people that take something at face value, and there's people who take stuff off. Confirmation bias, right? Confirmation bias. Confirmation yeah. bias is so dangerous mm-hmm. and uh, to the to the human experience. Right. And it's you're you're right. If, if because here's something that uh, that will confuse a lot of people. People, there are some people who do homework to music and they get it done way faster. If I if I end up listening to they music, they say they get it done way faster. Or well, yeah, or <laughs> or it helps them concentrate or whatever, uh-huh. right? But if yeah. I listen to music, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm yeah. think especially as a music composer, I'm thinking about all the intricacies and oh, what was that sound? You know, it was it was really funny. Uh, uh, I used to listen to single ladies a lot, but it's only recently that I I realized they have that mm-hmm. like record scratch. All throughout the song, mm-hmm. and I can't listen to it anymore. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just so crazy how our perceptions about certain things can change yeah. so quickly. I, so would the question be, oh, what, does it work now? Will it ever fall away? What does is that a a concrete position for them, or is that changing based off of their own uh, their own likes and their own personality? Mm-hmm. I wonder. I wonder, because there, I'm spe- I'm not an expert. I'll say I'll preface that, but there are certain innate fears, or or there seems to have been that that humans have. Oh, like if we see a spider. Mm-hmm. No matter what, you're going to be yeah. scared of it. If you right. hear a certain thing, like uh, humans have, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, uh, but humans have this innate fear of low-sounding uh, things mm-hmm. uh, be, for whatever reason. I, wa- mm-hmm. I wonder how that's, if that, like, what, what, at what point does something become hereditary versus uh, environmental? Yeah, influence? well, um, you know, I'm I'm an evolutionary psychologist, and I think there's good reason to um, uh, for people to to be scared of spiders. Historically, of we're scared of spiders. We're scared of snakes. Things that move like snakes are are terribly uncomfortable to us. You know, when we see that that wiggling pattern, um, uh, you know, and there are people who who if they have that spider phobia, um, I do. You know, right. Um, and and spiders have been a danger to us uh, for much longer than guns have, for example. So when you, uh, but guns kill probably many more people in the United States than spiders do. I don't have the stats at the, at the tip of my uh, you know my fingertips here. <laughs> um, but if you show pictures of guns to people and pictures of spiders to people, you'll get much more of an emotional reaction to those spiders than the guns. So you would think that behaviorally, after reading newspaper stories about the, you know the horrific mass shootings. You would think that that we would learn to have a conditioned fear of the guns in the same way we'd have a, a conditioned fear of the spiders, but we don't. Um, uh, you know, same with same with blood. Um, uh, I remember, uh, you know, a, a kid. I think you know when I was in um, uh, uh, kindergarten, I think it was, um, getting my tonsils out. The kid in the hospital room or in the same hospital room saw blood and foom, passed out. Passed out. First yeah. time I ever saw that. And, um, you know, I was like, what's that about? What, what's, there to be, what's there to be afraid of at the sight of blood? And, um, you know, one, one explanation is could be, you know, you play dead. You, if, if, if something, if, if, if you're witnessing someone else suffering, then the, the, a, a good strategy might be to be as unnoticeable to, uh, to whatever caused that blood as possible. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't, you know, we were scared of heights. You know, think of, think, you know, I, I remember the old World Trade Centers. There, there used to be in the observation deck of the old World Trade Centers, there used glass. to be the regular floor. And then there used to be like a six inch step down right up against the glass. So you were actually kind of like stepping down as oh, you were putting your face against the glass. And it was, it was terrifying. And, um, you know where does that come from? I had never been in a in a massive building like that, but the, you know there's something inside me that said you better you pay better attention to what's up, going yeah. on. Um, so yeah, I wonder I wonder if after so long of hearing the Western style of music, if that's uh, if that has maybe slowly become hereditary for the Western uh, people. Yeah, there's a chicken and egg thing there. Is yeah. it is it popular because uh, you know it's the the the, it works the, Beatles, the Beatles went all over the world. Yeah. Um. You know. Uh. So. Um. 
So I, I, I think we're, I think we're treading on thin ice when we look at quote unquote, a people Mm. and say, they appreciate this music. They don't appreciate this music because what you're, what you're doing is that you're suggesting that there's a brain wiring that is, um, that is different. Uh, and, and I think the similarities uh, are far, far, far greater than the differences are. Mm. And you will have different styles of music emerge from different areas that, that would probably serve a purpose. You know, like this, this is music that was created and sounds, it sounds strange to one set of ears, but what you don't realize is that when you're hearing the music in isolation, Maybe it was music that was designed to accompany a walk through a garden mm. where the music was not supposed to be central to your experience. It was supposed to just be, uh, it was just supposed to be something like the, uh, the, the dripping of water. Um, in which case, uh, the understanding of, of that music and that style uh, is instantly universal. Um, I think that... Um, you know, I think that when it comes to music, I think that what we're learning is that, uh, is that we're all drawn to, that m most of us across the planet are drawn to the same things for the same reasons. And again, it, it goes back to language because of the importance of language. There's no, it's, it, language is central to the human experience. The individual who is deprived of language or who doesn't understand language is 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 at is at risk of of ostracism and and solitude, um, so, so I I think I think even even when you look at that music that might be from a culture that you're not familiar with, even when it sounds strange, once you put it in context, once you understand where it came from, you'll probably get it. You'll probably say, oh yeah, okay, now that connects with me. There's a there's a African tribe that whenever someone is born, they create a specific song just for them. Mm -hmm. And have you heard of them? No. But, uh, no. but what will happen is if they ever do like a crime or something against the tribe, what they'll, what they'll do instead of punishment, mm -hmm. uh, they'll all gather around the, that person and start singing that song. Ooh. Right. And imagine yeah. the conviction yeah. uh, that that has on that person. Yeah. I, it's incredible the cultural impact a song can have on one specific because for that person that's got to be it's your name it's, it's your it's your yeah. it is mm -hmm. it's almost synonymous with your name exactly mm -hmm. and if you do something bad and they come around you and support you like that mm -hmm. you got the amount of feelings overwhelming feelings yeah. mm -hmm. of from the, you got nostalgia from the past when they've right. when they've sang to you uh, in a more loving in a more uh, celebratory way maybe. Right. And now, uh, I it's it's incredible how our brain can be wired to listen to a song. Like for example, there's a song. Um, everyone has that song that they had with their uh, previous partner. When they listen to it, <laughs> they just turn it off immediately, uh -huh, or they start uh -huh, break down. Yeah, uh -huh. Right. Uh, my mother used to sing Creed's uh, "Wide and Arms Wide Open." Uh huh. Whenever I hear that, I can't skip it because my mother's passed now. Oh, I'm sorry. Um. But uh, whenever I listen to it, I listen yeah. to the full thing, uh -huh. and it's right. so many emotions yeah. come over me because it's that particular song. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious if I want to. I want to know why, 
and I, I, want, I guess it does come back to language mm-hmm. the, and the just emotions and the feelings and, and brought into the uh, physical. Right, right. Well, everything else, all the other associations you made with it, yeah. too. Because um, it, it, it's, it's the memories, it's, um, it's the circumstances. Um, you know, you probably remember where you were when you were hearing that song, at least in a number of different occasions. And, um, and yeah, for as, um, you know, you know, for, for as, for as, you know, say it corny as that song is, it's, it's, you know, if, if somebody drops that song on you in that time of your life, I totally get it. I totally, you know, I see the connection. It's, you know, with the, he's a very earnest singer and, uh, And the um, and the message is 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 very you know it's 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 very it's very emotional it's very um, you know it, it it's it's very sincere. If you had any advice to give to younger musicians or even students, what would it be? Um, um, graze, you know, go go listen to what everybody else is is excited about. Uh, find live performances, support live performances. Uh, don't don't. Don't restrict your, uh, you know, having Spotify at your fingertips mm. is wonderful, um, but go see what people are doing, uh, if not only to support the live venue, but to see how people do it, to see how people, um, to see how people create an experience. Um, I am I am very excited about seeing um, uh, the Balkan Brothers. Uh, they're going to be at Telus Three Hundred and Sixty uh, coming up. And these are, first of all, they're two brothers, mm-hmm. which to me, as the father of a drummer and a guitarist, really connects with me. Right. I met the Balkan brothers at a, and, and they're just guitarist and drummer. And oh, you, so it's really, it's, it's really, that's it. It's just the two of them. And, um, and traditionally from a rock band, I've, I've thought that I've been operating in the bare bones system by playing in a three piece with the Pharaohs. Okay. They're just two of them. And um, and they cover they cover the sonic space with with just two of them without a bass player, huh. and uh, and watching how they you, you know most most people would say that's not enough to have a band, and that's not enough to, certainly not enough to have a live show, right? But they do it they do it and and you know the White Stripes had the same impact yeah. when they when they first started off, um, but looking at looking at artists who are not delivering the same formula you know you could go see a four piece or a five piece uh pop roots combo anywhere where there'd be uh drum bass two guitars and a keyboard drum bass uh two guitars and uh, uh you know saxophone who knows whatever there once once you have that that typical foundation it's easy to quote unquote create music and create and meet the crowd's expectations when you do something like the White Stripes do or what the Balkan Brothers do, and you just put the two of them on stage, and you go, wow, I, there's, they're pulling that off. They're, they're holding my attention. They're, you know, as a musician, they're covering the sonic space, and they're, they're doing this because they recognize where the potential holes would be, and they're reaching out and filling them. Sometimes they're leaving the holes there on purpose. Um, but find find those acts who are presenting themselves atypically, mm. and and see how they have um, uh, how they make see, it. See how they make it. See how they see how they, they tackle that different approach. What is one thing that you didn't expect uh, when you went into the music industry? 
one thing I mean in the industry I flatter myself to say I'm part of the industry I'm I'm, I'm I feel like I'm pretty peripheral but I'm a you know I'm I'm a I'm, I'm a gigging guy um what didn't I expect I didn't expect the bottom to fall out of live music um oh really and the oh yeah in the, in the 90s in the 90s around here uh and I think it's everywhere in the 90s around here um uh you could gig three nights a week uh and any and any establishment that had 12 square feet of space on their floor would be hiring live music uh that evaporated partly with um partly with social media i think partly with the the advent of the iphone because um people people are connecting on their phones in the way that they needed to use Music. The uh, the live music to to do it, and that huh. that's hurt. That's hurt a lot, and um, and uh, the musicians, the the importance of putting out an album, um, which which to me, as as I've said, I'm I'm a procrastinator when it comes to recording. Uh, I have no incentive to put out an album anymore. You record one song at a time, archive now. it somewhere. It's all singles, which is kind of funny because that's the way music started. That's the way. Right. Yeah. That's you know that was that was Elvis. Elvis was all singles. It's all singles now, and and weirdly, YouTube has also encroached on this. You know, you have so many YouTube stars. So uh, if you want to get discovered, you're not going to get discovered because uh, an agent. From gotcha. EMI yeah. found, finds you, you're gonna because you, those agents are are they don't exist anymore. Everybody is scouring YouTube. Yeah. Everybody's scouring YouTube for trends and um, and uh, the the loss of the album has gone along with that. You know, you have references to to Queen, the Night at the Opera. These artists these artists felt the need to construct. Two, like acts in a play. They, you know, a good album is two 22, 25-minute performances, side one, side two. Uh, that's gone. Um, and there are, there are artists who still operate like that, but I find that they're the older ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know if we'll get that back, and that's, I'm, I'm kind of sad about that. And Maybe that's my problem because I'm an old man. Um, but that, but that challenge for an artist to go into the studio and put together a cohesive set of, of music, of music, um, it's I don't I don't know I don't know who would bother with that anymore. It's a, well, it's a, it's an art form for mm-hmm. sure. I'm but I'm uh, I'm still seeing a lot of people put out even younger musicians uh, around here put out albums. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm hopeful for it because I, I I never really paid attention to the albums. Like when I say Queen, I, I you know I just listen to their Bohemian Rhapsody, their uh, mm-hmm. Don't Stop Me Now, their you know their main hits. I, right. I never really sat down and listened to an album, uh, but that's something I'm starting to do more and more is listen mm-hmm. to albums as a whole whole piece yeah. and finding those singles that are like just a piece of candy within within that whole storyline. Mm-hmm. And when your friends are putting out an albums, you know, no no disrespect to them, but I don't think I would have an album in me because. To mm. set out to write an album, the songs have to fit together again, like acts in a play, uh, and well, scenes within the acts. There's a reason the first song is the first song. There's a reason the second right. song is the second, and you know it builds and finishes in a in a way that is that is that is a 45 minute performance. Um, and recording 10 songs over your over a year 
Right. And then course. just putting them on and saying, well, I'm going to put this song on the beginning of side one because it's my strongest, and I'm going to put this song on the beginning of side gotcha. two, and then I'm going to put the quiet ballad at the end. Um, uh, that's not the same as, 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 const- as, as constructing that cohesive piece. Um, so what is one thing? What is, give me your top three albums to listen to. Oh, geez. Uh, oh, I hate doing that because, um, because as soon as I walk out the door, I'll, I'll think, oh, think of way more. I wish, wish I hadn't done that. Um, uh, Van Morrison's Moon Dance. Um, you know, even if, even if I sometimes skip the song Moon Dance itself, <laughs> uh, there's, um, you know, the, the sax on Into the Mystic is, is fantastic. Um, oh, geez. I, I'm, I'm like, I've got all these albums swimming in my head. Which ones, which ones do I pick out? Um, uh, you know, Salt Hill is very much influenced by the Waterboys and the, um, uh, Fisherman's Blues album uh, is a is a wonderful example of um, of, uh, of of listening to a band transition from being you you literally hear from side one to side two you hear the band stepping out of um, of of one style of eighties music and then by the time the album is over they have just fallen into um, into this modern Irish traditional sound, and uh, and and the, the, I I it, it's kind of unfair for me to pick this album because I'm so invested in the in where the album was recorded. I I know the building that the album was recorded in on the west coast of Ireland, and I I I I know the feel of that town, and um and uh and everything there. And and to me, that album, not. There are there are personal reasons that that I love that album. That mm-hmm. that you know when you, when you tell somebody this is a great album, they cannot possibly um, they cannot possibly understand all of the like you said right. about the Creed song. They can't they can't possibly appreciate everything that song means to you, and uh, it's not going to hit them in the same way. Um, but that album was great for that. And then, geez, um, uh, Carbon Leafs, Indian Summer. Um, was a song that that hit me when um, uh, when my kids were young, and my family kind of grew up with that album as as kind of a soundtrack to the, you know it's it's a wonderful album music musically, and um, and it was also an album that even at their young age at, at a young age my kids identified with. And we can't. We kind of became like family stalkers of the band, following them around. You know, we've got family pictures of ourselves with them, um, and uh, and they they again were one of those bands that in the early days of of Salt Hill kind of shaped what I saw was possible. Um, uh, they bring in a lot of they'll they'll do like full rock one minute, and then they'll bring in very kind of a, a traditional instruments and, mm-hmm. and do very strange instrumentations i can go on and on and on and i'm leaving out this and i'm leaving out that um but but you asked for three and there you go there are three so last question what is one of the funniest things or maybe worst things that ever happened to you on a gig on a gig um i remember geez going up to penn state I, we had a we had a gig booked in penn state and i think there were there was 
probably six inches of packed snow on the ground. Oh, no. And our vehicle was a, we had a Dodge Tradesman van, 1978 Dodge Tradesman van. And I remember driving up Route 283, um, and there were ruts in the road because nothing had been plowed. And somehow our van had the clearance to this. And I, I just remember we're going to, you know, there were no cell phones. It was just going, we're going right. we're we're to freeze and I'm going to die. I mean, we're just, we're just going to die. And this is the dumbest reason to die. Um, and, uh, some, and, and again, we didn't have like satellite radar. We didn't know how much worse it was going to be as we got up there. But as we got, as we got west of Harrisburg, miraculously, the snow kind of was, was in the, uh, opposite direction as, as it was everywhere else. But, um, but yeah, I, I just remember being in the van going, this is, this is crazy. Adults, adults don't, don't do things like that. <laughs> um, but we got there. That's one that's we got there. Yeah, we got there, and it was it was an uneventful gig after that. But uh, but yeah, there, there, those times, you know, there are times when you're sitting there with your buddies going, and you're not saying it out loud, but you're going, "This is really dumb. We're gonna we're gonna this isn't gonna end well." And this isn't gonna happen ever. This again. This isn't gonna happen ever again. I'm gonna die in a 1978 Dodge Tradesman. The, not a very not a very dignified way to go. Well, Sean, this has been a wonderful time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. If you want to check out his stuff, please be sure to check out the description. All of his Facebook and Reverb Nation stuff will be there. Check him out tomorrow at the uh, Stoner, Stoner Grill. Grill right? Yep. Yeah, Stoner Grill tomorrow, and all of his upcoming gigs are will be on uh, in the description as well. Or you can check out his Facebook page and give him a like and share there. With all that said, my name is Corey Rosen. This has been the Story Podcast. Please be sure to check out our uh, awesome, awesome check us out on Spotify. Check out our shop. We have stickers and shirts and sweatshirts with the first fifty guests on the back. And if you want to support us, please be sure to like, share with your friends. And you know what? If you have someone that you would like to be on, please be sure don't hesitate to reach out. I'm open, and I have. A lot of time. I'm only 22. <laughs> so please be sure to reach out to me. With all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Tomorrow, we're going to be having a guest, Don Grabowski, who has created these awesome gloves for musicians that they help with arthritis, they help with uh, calluses and all that stuff. And I'm really excited to talk to him because he he's a local guy who does stuff internationally. Our sells his product internationally. I'm really excited to talk to him and his business and how that all works. With all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the day. I'll see you guys later. Bye.